Today's episode is brought to you by Sundays for Dogs. Your dog deserves tasty, healthy, real food, not kibble. Sundays is real food for dogs, formulated by a vet with only the highest quality fresh meat, veggies, fruit and superfoods, then simply air-dried to perfection. Made in the USA at a USDA human food facility. It's customised for your dog's size, breed and activity level. It's real, raw, whole food ingredients. Air-dried for superior nutrition, taste and convenience. It's quality ingredients for maximum health. For our American friends, the plan starts at less than $2 a day. And Sundays for Dogs is shipping to the UK too. You'll notice increased excitement about eating, better stools, far more energy, improved weight, an easy to maintain weight, a softer and shinier coat. Take a quick quiz to find out the right plan for your pup. And the best part is this. Get 35% off your first order with the promo code DOGSLIFE. Yes, that's 35% off with the promo code DOGSLIFE. So go to sundaysfordogs.com. That's sundaysfordogs.com. You know, I was so excited when I came home from the natural pet care show the other day. That's because I bumped into three leading lights in the veterinary world and they were all in the same place at the same time. So guess what? We recorded a podcast with Dr. Andrew Prentice, Dr. Nick Thompson and Dr. Lise Hansen all at once. So, welcome to A Dog's Life. brilliant to see you again because I know you're over from Denmark um, to be here at the Natural Pet Care Show and um, I've also got Dr Nick Thompson here and of course Andrew Prentice my old vet so it's all it's all very exciting um, something that I'm being asked Lise Nick Andrew um, about at the moment is titer tests um, you know cause, um, there's been a few features one was written by myself about titer testing helping pet parents you know manage their dog's um, immunity and stopping them from over vaccination and possible risk to their health as people who know me well know um, it's a subject that's close to my heart because of my first miniature bull terrier Molly um, now Lee I've heard several people say to me that their vets have been charging them between 350 and 400 pounds for a titer test. Yes, I can tell you what's happened there. The, I mean, we, we did a whole one of these podcasts about titer testing, didn't we, right when you first started out? I'm glad to have been there from the beginning. No, um, it's great, we, But we, get, we can never talk too much about titer testing. I would say if, if, if anybody owns a dog, certainly a dog over four months old, who hasn't had a titer test yet, then they are due one or overdue one, really. Every dog needs to be titer tested. Um, there is now available an in-house titer test kit that really every vet should have at their practice. And if they do that, then it's quick and easy and maybe not cheap, but 
relatively cheap, certainly much, much cheaper than the figures you're quoting there. If the vet has the equipment to analyze the blood test in the clinic, so always make sure that they have an in-house titer test kit, because then you will be, well, paying probably a quarter of, of what you were just saying. What happens is if the vet doesn't have the equipment themselves, they will take the blood test and they will send it up to a, up to a lab, which escalates the pricing ridiculously, but also makes it harder to interpret the test results. Now this is interesting because um, a friend of mine has recently had her puppy tested and the results came back uh, with all of her levels for parvo hepatitis and um, distemper as being under 50. And the vet has then said, look, her levels are so low, she really does need to have her second puppy shot. This is a puppy that has actually at the moment only had one puppy shot. Um, and, you know, um, my friend is, you know, reluctant to give her, you know, um, an overdose of vaccines, basically. Um, and at that point, Point, so her levels are under 50 and the vet is saying she, you know, she is not immune, she has no serological immunity. I mean, I'd hate to comment on an individual case, but, but this is an example of how it's much easier to interpret the results if they come. This is, quoting results in that way means it has clearly not been done um, in an in-house titer test kit. Because if you do the most common one, you, the, it comes out as a number for each of the three diseases that you're testing for between zero and six. Um, and if it is two and above, it's a yes, your dog is protective and doesn't need a vaccine. And if it's one or zero or one, your dog needs a vaccine. But it makes it very, very clear cut. Uh, the labs are not really geared up for this sort of um, decision um, or advising on this sort of decision. They're geared up for diagnosing disease. And if they're diagnosing acute disease, then the levels make, make much more sense and you need the nuances. But there are different cutoff points for different diseases and you can just all get very confused using very quickly but if you stick with the in-house kit it's cheaper and it's much much easier for the vet to use the information in a, it becomes very very clear-cut so I've just advised everybody one the important point get a tighter test but two get to a clinic ask your clinic if they do it in-house and if they don't find someone that does that and thankfully it's becoming much much more common Yes, no, well, it is. It's great. I mean, you know, I remember in 2006 when um, I took Molly for a titer test, her results were sent out um, because I don't think the in-house ones were, were available at that point, you know, and I had a long conversation to, to the vet um, and uh, she, I remember her saying, well, look, you're wasting your money and it was expensive then. I can't remember. It was about £500 and her bloods went off to Edinburgh. And, um, but when the results came back, you know, the vet... Um, was shocked actually because she said you're wasting your money because they're going to come back low you're going to have to vaccinate Molly anyway um, but Molly's results age six you see were all high but on, on, on her notes it did say high 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 so there weren't any percentages involved so so maybe the results are being supplied differently to to in 2006 I mean that is a very long time ago I don't know what do you think Nick um, in 2006 I imagine the bloods will have gone to the wonderful Professor Hal Thompson at Glasgow right and they would have done uh, hemagglutination 
uh, testing because the VaxiCheck, this very simple, uh, it's like a dipstick, it's like a pregnancy test or a, or a lateral flow test, if you like. You, you dip it in, you see the colour of the result, and that will give you an indication as to what kind of antibody levels. And it is super simple and it's relatively cheap. Uh, to do so I do think yeah uh, as Lisa says have a chat with the vet practice and if they are charging punitive levels of of, of treatment of, 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 of charge for such a simple thing then you know have, have ring round ring round mm. and find find another practice I believe that there's a there's a chain of practices in London mm. mentioning no names that does um, the tests at a relatively cheap uh, rate. So, oh, golly, well, if it is mm. the one I'm thinking of that has uh, bought a lot of independent practices recently, this was the one in question, which actually was £400. Um, and, and check this out the, the pet parent was advised that they still would need to have their uh, first year booster. Okay, um, uh, there's a few things to say there. The first thing is that. Um, Teeter testing is recommended by the World Small Animal Veterinary Association. Their first recommendations came out in about 2008, 2010, and they were saying in black and white that the industry standard is to do the VaxiCheck test. They're saying it. So it's not like you're going off-piste when you ask for a teeter test. It is completely legitimate to... To, to, to make that decision because vaccines are arguably a useful tool in the armory of a veterinary surgeon but to overuse any medicine is completely counter to how we are trained. So if we use a TETA test to just see what the antibody levels are like we can then make a clinical decision as to whether they need it or not and I think that's a lot more sensible. If you've got gas in your tank you don't need to go to the garage you don't need a top-up and uh, on, on the contrary if you give a vaccine uh, and you, the the dog has got antibodies that vaccine will have zero and Hal was talking about this 20 years ago that vaccine will have zero impact on the immune uh, status of that dog it'll just be gobbled up by the antibodies Yes, that's an interesting point that every single dog is an individual. So every dog's um, individual tighter readings will be slightly different. But as you say, putting more in um, isn't going to top those results up. Andrew, what do you think about this? And do you think that, you know, um, at vet school, are vets learning about tighter tests? As Nick said, uh, the, the World Small Animal Veterinary Association now recommends that, but um, we're, we're a rather conventional profession, unfortunately, and it takes a long time for this kind of thing to change. There's two things I wanted to point out. One is that um, tighter testing is mainstream. It should be much more widely used than it is, and it doesn't require very expensive equipment, so it's a very, very small investment from from the veterinary clinic to do it and we certainly used to do it as routine for every dog from puppyhood onwards and we would always do it before before vaccinating and we then because then we knew um, that in the sort of the 95 plus percent of animals that came back with a positive titer test that we didn't need to vaccinate for those 
three particular diseases. Now, so the, so the first thing is, it's very inexpensive for the clinics to do it. Secondly, um, the, the, the late and much lamented Professor Michael Day, who was a, a leader in, in this field, he took the view that if your dog has any identifiable antibodies, um, then this dog will be immune. Now, there's a slight sort of grey area because we need, we're scientists, we need to be able to give definitive answers. It's very difficult to do that. But he would, his view was, if there are any antibodies, then that dog is capable of producing an immune response to the disease. And in the face of a potential infection, that will just kick in and the immunity will start. So, and that's where we are. You know, it is really interesting, but it, you know, it is a little worrying to hear these stories, you know, on the ground, um, that perhaps, you know, messages are still a little bit mixed, you know, I mean, the, the old cynic in me, um, you know, might <laughs> speak out and, you know, say that arguably some vets would like dogs to be vaccinated. Um, Nick, take that. Vets are committed to the health of their animals. I think this is an absolute. Um, but they are trained in a very um, pharmaceutical paradigm. And so if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail to a certain extent. And I think that uh, my plea to the profession would be to read the World Small Animal Veterinary Association guidelines, you know, it's like a decree from the Vatican. It's, you know, these are, they're well informed, they know what they're talking about, and they're saying the industry standard should be, should be teeter testing. So I, I, I can't see how any, any veterinary surgeon can um, uh, make it difficult to teeter test, which is unfortunate, you know, if you're charging 400 quid for, for a test, that, that's, that is going to stand in the way of the, of the client. Um, and, and, and that's a shame because it's a, it's a powerful way of doing things. You know, don't give a medicine if the animal doesn't need it. Yes. Um, interestingly, um, when I um, moved to uh, the Shires um, and uh, I was uh, actually in Shropshire, um, uh, I went to see one vet and I explained, you know, that uh, Prudence had had both of her puppy shots, but I would really like to continue by, you know, monitoring her immunity with uh, a teeter titer test. Oh, you know what? He, he went, well, we can't have you as a client in my practice if you don't vaccinate. And I said to him, I remember I was putting my coat on and I had my back to him and I was just breathed and I turned around and I said, well, look, I'm not saying I don't vaccinate. Prudence has been vaccinated. What I'm saying to you is I don't want to over vaccinate. Um, and that was, um, yes, just before I, I decided to drive nearer Wales um, and, um, you know, become registered with the amazing um, Barbara Jones at the Oakwood practice. Um, and you know the rest is is history so now this wasn't long ago um and you know i don't know lise what do you think of that well i think it's not a matter of being you know for or against 
vaccination and it's not a matter of being for or against teeter testing either it's it's simply where the science is at so there is no i mean the wsava collected the best veterinary immunologists that there are from all around the world and they formed this expert group who wrote uh, the report that's available for everybody to read on wsava.org um, and that tells us all how we should vaccinate and how we should use titer testing. So no individual vet anywhere is going to know better. So it's not that there's an argument um, or a disagreement between professionals. There are really those who know have spoken and there are only those who haven't gotten around to to reading what, what you know what the experts say or have changed their practices yet and and i think it is just a, a factor of being human that change is slow and and i certainly frequently get very frustrated by the fact that this information has been around for 15 years uh, roughly and still you know you hear professionals who are not um following um, what the experts are suggesting that we should do but the advice is very very clear and the report says that if you want to practice according to a golden standard, you know, if you want to do only what's best for the animal, then you will do a titer test before you give a vaccine. Um, so I can only, I can only encourage every dog owner to take that into their own hands and make sure that their dog gets a titer test. Lise, you're you're practicing in Denmark, so you're in the EU. Um, do you think that makes a difference? You know, um, do you, do you think you know? Uh, in the EU, vets are more enlightened. I, I think I read somewhere that now in the EU, vets are not allowed to just willy-nilly give a pet parent a wormer. That prior to being given a wormer, you know, you have to test to see if your dog has worms, um, which, you know, we, everyone in the UK can do that as well. Do you think it's because you're Danish, Lees, that you're saying I, this? I don't think... I mean. Worming in particular in Denmark actually has been um, regulations for decades, I think. I can't remember it not being the case that as a vet you cannot prescribe a, ver a wormer um, without diagnosing that individual to, to suffer from worms. Um, and I'm sure that will be the case anywhere. Um, but it's another example of a fundamental principle that you should test before you treat. You know, you should check if the animal needs a vaccine before you give the vaccine and you should check if the individual has worms before you give a wormer. Um, and that's just a very fundamental principle of, of good medicine. Because it's all about the body burden, isn't it? You know, um, I mean, Lise, you're a conventional vet, but you practice um, holistically. Dr. Nick Thompson, you're the same, a conventional vet. So, you know, um, you're doubly qualified in my mind, really. Um, you know, so the body burden is, is something pet parents should be aware of. Andrew. Yeah, I'm so glad that Lise brought up this issue of, of parasite treatments because it's something very close to my heart and something we're doing a lot of work on at the moment. Um, we, as a profession, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, we'd all got into the habit of just giving out parasite treatments left, right and centre all the time. And the reality is that in this country, very little testing is, is going on. Now, that's all well and good. But actually, in this country, we have a massive biodiversity problem. Um, that our green and pleasant land is rapidly turning into a green and pleasant desert. Um, and uh, I'm involved with a big research project at, at Imperial College, which is looking at pesticide residues in the environment. And some of those are veterinary pesticides, and they should not be there. And, and big, one of the problems is that 
as, as a profession and as pet owners, because some of these are available over the counter just on request, um, we're just, we've, we've got into the habit of giving these products all the time to our pets without ever asking the question, well, does my pet actually have parasites? And the second question, if my, ha- my, if my pet has parasites, is that actually a problem? Now, the, the, I think you know, I have a gut which is full of bacteria. That's completely normal. I don't take antibiotics all the time to kill all the bacteria in my gut. So just because a pet may have some parasites doesn't necessarily mean that's a health problem for the pet or for you as the owner. Well, it's interesting, um, isn't it, the microbiome? Because, um, you know, I did a talk yesterday um, and I talked about the microbiome and it's fascinating to actually consider this, that 99% of your immune system doesn't belong to you. It belongs to lots of furry friends that are living in your gut, um, gut, associated lymphatic tissue. Nick, is that that right? Um, And, you know, we want to keep these furry friends so, so, you know, by, by, by killing them, you know, regularly with, you know, f- parasite treatments, non-steroidal infl- inflammatories, the like, processed food, of course, um, and, and antibiotics, it's, uh, you know, it's not, um, it's, not, it's not helping the relationship between dogs and pet parents. And something I made a point of saying yesterday is that, look, every dog's an individual they're chapters of our lives they impact on us so massively you know we all want our dogs to live forever um, and it's a shame that sometimes you have to fight hammer and tong to keep your dog in good health it seems this massive irony to me Nick ah where do I start um, sometimes it, it w- when you go to the vet you think right I've got to do something I've got to add something to my dog's uh, environment or diet or something in order to make them more healthy but I think many many times it's actually you don't need to add something to the dog's environment to the dog's diet you need to take those things away so as Andrew was saying I think that minimizing drastically the flea and tick pesticides that we put on our dogs as much as possible is a very very good idea if you ain't got fleas why are you using a pesticide uh, if, you, if your dog is not prone to ticks why are you using, using a pesticide it's a bit like having an anodine every morning <coughs> just in case you get a headache in the afternoon it's it's preventing something that's not even there in the first place mm-hmm. and equally it's the same argument for for worms it's it, it, if you test for worms and you don't find them how can you possibly justify using a pharmaceutical which will change your microbiome and there's a wonderful book by john cryan called the uh, psychobiotic revolution and his his thesis is that a healthy gut directly there are four or more communication channels to the brain so and when you control the brain you control everything so therefore the bacteria the virus the archaea in your gut are actually influencing who you are and who your dog is and their health and their immune system psychoneuroendocrino immunology all this stuff 
is so important. It if your really brain's is. if your brain's in the wrong place, nothing else is going to be in the right place. Yeah, well, there was this study actually that I did read in the amazing book, The Forever Dog, that interested me. Thirty pit bulls were rescued from a gangland awful place in Chicago, and they they were taken to safety. And these dogs' stools, the dogs were divided into two groups: those that really did look like they were really really aggressive, and those that weren't but could have been turned into being an aggressive dog. Um, and they, they, they compared the stools of both of these groups and they discovered that the bacteria content of these two groups of dogs were distinctly different. So that's kind of another, I found that very, very interesting. But it is, you know, you know, segueing, you know, to the environment and you know, all of us are dogs and us, you know, it was that study, wasn't it, Andrew, by the University of Sussex, we did a podcast about it, where the British rivers were found to be 38 times above the safety limit of fipronil and um, immunochloride, which I can never say right. Immunochloride. <laughs> That's yeah. the one. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, what you were saying, you know, because you put the flea treatment on, it goes on your hands, you wash your hands, goes on the dog bed, you wash your dog's dog bed, and then it just all comes into the waterways, you know. So could we be drinking these insecticides, Andrew? Uh, short answer to that is yes, potentially. Um, we were just reviewing some, some of the latest data yesterday and, and there's a, a really shocking number of the rivers and tributaries in the Thames catchment area that do have significant levels, of, particularly of this thing called imidacloprid, which uh, is now banned for use in agriculture in this country. Um, and you need to ask, well, why why have these been why has this been banned in agriculture? Well, it's because it's uh, it's as good at, k- at killing the good insects as it is killing the so-called bad insects. And the same applies to any of these parasite treatments. If you have a pet which is unhealthy, which is ill because of parasites, then you're going to want to do something to try and fix that. But if, if the pet is fundamentally healthy, you need to be very careful. These products do go through, they do end up in the rivers, and they kill invertebrates in the rivers as well as they do on the pets. That's what they're designed to do. And it's worth bearing in mind that this country, um, the UK, there, there is a, there's a thing called the World Biodiversity Intactness Index. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a measure of how intact the natural biodiversity as a country is. And there's 218 countries on the register, and the UK is listed at 189th. So we're really, really in trouble. You drive a car around on a summer's evening, there's no flies on the windscreen, there's no flies on the headlights, because there aren't any. Right? The moth populates. There was a moth count done in, in London just recently that collected no moths at all. I overnight. think they're all in my flat. Well, it's yes, okay. No, but it's just to illustrate, you know, we, do, we have a big, big problem here. And, and if we don't do something about it, it's really going to come horribly unstuck. Yeah, so it's like comparing the environment to our own microbiomes, you know. Um, so Lee's, you know, this... And then there's processed food, isn't there, Lee's, that then affects the microbiome. And I know I've spoken out, I've been quite proud to, I I will say, um, against feeding dogs vegan recently. Um, And um, I don't know what you think of that. Oh, I think Nick is really the person to speak about diet. <laughs> I, I, I think feeding raw. I don't have the scientific, scientific um, aspects of that discussion the way Nick does. But to me, it's just gut um, instinct, really. Of course, dogs need to eat meat. And I have 
not fed my dog anything else for many, 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 many years. Yes, um, good. I, th- I think as a as someone who's responsible for the health of a dog or a cat, there are four main issues that you need to consider. Um, which are in your book. Which are in my book, yes. Um, the complete book of cat and dog health um, discusses, among other things, these four issues. I think, I think you need to look at diet, for sure. You need to look at vaccination. Um, you need to look at uh, parasites, uh, what you do about parasites or don't do about parasites. Um, and finally, you need to look at neutering. Um, and those are four areas. That's interesting where, to discuss yeah. with you because you're Scandinavian. You know, I'm half Scandinavian. Yes. I always say that. So I'm quite <laughs> proud of my Viking roots. Um, but in Norway, you know, it's illegal, isn't it, yes. to neuter? Yes. You know, and I say this to pet parents, and they can't believe it. Um, and, and and early neutering can do so much damage. I've got one dog on my books at the moment. Um, he's a bull terrier, actually, and the vet was so keen to neuter him at six months. But you know, he already perhaps was showing some issues resource guarding that does 80% of the time start at the breeders you know and then of course there's so much science now that does categorically say as well that neutering will make you know a male dog potentially more reactive not the reverse which has been what vets have told pet parents for for decades you know um so what do you think well we, we used to think until very recently that neutering was a fairly benign routine procedure and if you weren't going to breed anyway it was probably easier uh, to have your animal neutered and that was that and it's only in well the first study came out in 2013 um, and a flurry of studies came out sort of just before covid I and mean, probably still coming out um, just looking into this area we have discovered um, that neutering can be deeply damaging to areas of health that we just never suspected would be affected by this at all. There is an increased risk of uh, cancers, of arthritis, of joint disease, ligament disease, but also of allergies, autoimmune disease, thyroid disease. It seems like sexual hormones are not just about reproduction, they are about health, uh, full stop. And we just very arrogantly thought that not going to breed, we can, you know, take away um, the sexual organs. And we have inadvertently caused a lot of harm doing that, which, which I hasten to add, neither vets nor pet parents can blame themselves um, for the harm that we did. But now that the information is available, we really need to know that neutering is harmful and neutering an animal can make a difference. Neutering a dog can make a difference between that dog living or dying. Um, it's not something we can afford to do um, in, in any any you know situation. I, can I just add to that that I'm talking about routine neutering of young animals. I'm not talking about you know a dog with an illness that means that neutering is in its best interest. Mm. But but this cultural thing that we've had of just neutering anim- neutering dogs when they reach sexual maturity has to be completely uh, a thing of the past now. But you see, it isn't. <laughs> um, so I've got pet parents that have just got puppies. You know, we've been in this pandemic boom. I was talking to someone this this week with a three-month-old Italian greyhound. The vet is already on their case for spaying. Now, fortunately, this pet parent has read the forever dog and asked my view on it you see you know what should I do and I said just hold off there's no rush just don't say yes Um, you know remember she is your dog and sometimes I know I've felt this at vets it's like hang on a minute (laughs) she's I mean I still get it prudence is nearly seven she's not um, spayed and when she had an emergency um, 
actually none of us you know have really spoken about this she um uh, uh you know my vet didn't believe me when I said I think she's got something stuck in her throat she wasn't showing the classic signs of this in fairness typical um, but indeed she definitely did have something very dangerously stuck in her throat but if I hadn't known my dog or been informed and gotten her to the Queen Mother Hospital when I did my GP vet because she hadn't been spayed automatically thought that she was under the weather because she was having a pyometra even though there were no symptoms of that either but because they didn't know and they weren't listening to what I said or believed that I understood what my dog was about um, if I'd not gone right I'm just holding at the moment for the Queen Mother Hospital um, can you just refer me now so I've got my car over there and I need to get my dog there ASAP and you know I was you know, basically being a bit rude I think but you know um, but you know you're panicking when prudence was going down on me rapidly what am I supposed to do believe someone who met my dog for 15 minutes that seems to know everything about her or you know myself you know um so yeah and and so and then all this now oh well she's not spayed oh when did she la had her last season oh three months ago oh it's a pyometra um really but i thought it smelt oh no, 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 no. anyway okay nick um i really want to talk about vegans quickly <laughs> what do you make of this research that hit the press? I won't name any names. Um, research that hit the press, and it, it was uh, talked about a lot on the radio, that um, uh, a study of dogs fed on a vegan diet for a year meant that these vegan dogs were way more healthy than dogs fed on an average meat-based diet. I don't really know where to start with that one, Anna. To be quite honest, um, I think if you feed if you feed a dog on on chalk ice and chips for a year, you'd probably um, find you know some aspects of their health may improve. I'm being very facetious, obviously, <laughs> but um, I think that the more one departs from a species-appropriate diet. And we see this with humans, you know, the more you move away from simple uh, cooked, uh, uh, cooked or raw food for humans uh, who are omnivorous, the more you move away from that, a.k.a. ultra-processed food, the more um, unhealthy they will become. The thing about um, vegan food is it's very, very processed. Um, I think that there are many food manufacturers making food for humans because veganism is a is a big boom at the moment and they love it because they're just making squillions of pounds feeding people who are very well-meaning I think vegans are fantastic they they care about their health they care about the planet and I think all power to them however um, in, in in my reading it is it's really important for many many reasons that we look at having small mixed local farms in order to regenerate the countryside because the agriculture the modern agriculture that we have at the moment has led us down a path of utter utter destruction and uh, some authorities say we've only got 50 harvests left so we need to change our ways and I think feeding dogs a vegan diet is not going to help. I think in the future we all need fewer and smaller dogs 
um, in order to reduce the amount of, of, of meat that we eat. We humans should eat less and we should eat less meat but better quality uh, and when I say quality it means uh, grown in a regenerative agriculture mm. systems. I think there is no other way. No. And it's interesting though as well, something I, I was discussing and say, you know, suddenly in 2013 a study came out, a Swedish study actually by Axelsons that proclaimed that dogs were omnivores. Um, and, you know, you read now you, news stories, you know, that say, you know, because dogs are omnivores. Um, so, Andrew, pick up on that. Are dogs omnivores or carnivores? <laughs> Well, thanks for that. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, dogs are primarily carnivores, but they can, they can and do eat a wide range of foods. What I, what I did want to say to you, though, is in this context, because what, what we're sort of dancing around here, again, is a little bit of an environmental issue as to, you know, how is the planet going to support this number of people and this number of dogs? And it's, it's, it's worth just pointing out that the, the human population of this planet is rising. And it's going to continue to rise for about the next 30 years. And we will, it will plateau in the early 2050s. But between now and about 2052, something like that, the predictions are that the, population, the human population of the planet will increase by about a third. Now that is a huge, huge population increase in a really, really short period of time. Once we get over that hill, things will start to stabilize a little bit. So we do need to ask bigger, wider questions about how's everybody going to eat? Um, and the reality is that we can't all survive on beefsteak every day because that requires more land than, than we have. So we, as humans, need to eat a more mixed diet. We do need to eat more fruit and veg. Uh, we probably need to eat rather less grain um, and need to be careful about the meat. But it does raise an issue as to what are all our pets going to eat? Because certainly all the felines, all the cats, are obligate carnivores. There's absolutely no choice there. In this country alone, there's somewhere between 10 and 12 million cats. Um, we look at the dog population, it's probably 9, 10 million, something like that in the UK. And they, in, in terms of their natural evolution, eat a very meat-rich diet. So we've got a sort of slightly insoluble problems here. 20 million pets, 70 million people, it's all increasing dramatically. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult juggling act. So I, the answer is, I don't know. Back to you. <laughs> well, my, my little theory would be that, you know, all humans should become vegans because um, we are omnivorous. So, <laughs> next phase. That's <laughs> brilliant. Um, but potentially so that we can all benefit from dogs and cats because, you know, the benefits they bring us humble humans is, is, is so great. Um, and, you know, we have to think about our own mental health, our, our ability to get out of bed and go hiking in the woods. You know, who's going to do that without a Labrador? Andrew. Yes, and, and uh, it's like everything, we shouldn't look at these things in isolation. And if we try and think, well, what's the environmental impact of pets? Well, it's not just about the pet. Because, as you rightly point out, dog owners particularly, they get out the house more, they exercise more, they, they, they will be moving more and they will meet more people in the park and talk to people, which is good for their uh, mental, psychological health. 
moving walking the dog is better for our physical health which on those things together will probably be reducing the load on the national health service which reduces the you know the, the environmental impact of all our healthcare services so it's it's complicated i'm a big fan of pet ownership i should say that not just because i'm a vet but it has huge benefits for so many people particularly in the society we have at the moment which really we suffer a lot from isolation there's too many people living on their own and actually the companionship that the pet gives them and the companionship that that allows them to have with other people is really valuable Oh, I couldn't agree more, you know, um, loneliness is um, the biggest silent killer, I think. Um, so, gosh, this is so interesting. So, oh, Nick, would you like to add to this? Uh, um, um, veganism. Let's just have a chat about veganism. Okay. There's two main arguments for veganism. Number one is that it's healthier. You live longer if you are a vegan. And the other is that it will save the planet mm. because you can derive more protein per acre from, uh, uh, if you, if, if, from plants. I don't go with either of those because um, I think that there are many studies demonstrating that actually vegans are not necessarily more healthy than meat eating individuals okay so that's that's number one i don't think that there is strong science to suggest that veganism uh, it makes you healthier so does will veganism save the planet i don't think it will because um where are you going to get the fertilizer for all those plant crops the best fertilizer on the planet comes out the back end of cows and sheep and they I feel, and many authors, Joel Salatin, Gabe Brown, um, many authors are going down this line and saying they are part of the solution. And I think this is very, very important. You know, just to say again, if we all went vegan, where does the fertilizer come from? Uh, well, the answer, it comes from Ukraine, half, you know, a third of the fertilizer, a third of the grain. So um, when petroleum prices inevitably rocket as petroleum becomes less and less uh, available we're going not going to be able able to grow vast amounts of these plants we need to have integrated mixed species farms just down the road and that's where you get your food you get your fruit you get your veg you get your meat and you get very good quality material and you treat it very respectfully we at the moment on the planet we we waste 50% of everything that's grown is wasted so logically we could feed 14 billion people Andrew's talking about 10 billion or so we could feed them if we got our acts together um, so uh, I think it's very important that we all become very aware of regenerative agriculture because as far as I can see it's the only thing standing between us and declining like the Romans, the Byzantines, the Greeks, they all squandered their soil and look where they are now. Gosh, that's a very sobering thought. Lise, what do you think? I mean, in, in Scandinavia, you know, ultimately a great farming nation, a cluster of countries, um, you know, is there vegan dog food in Denmark? 
I would love to. I actually don't know. I don't even want to know if no. there is. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, that's for sure. I mean, I can think of a third reason apart from the two that Nick gave. I became vegetarian for a third reason, which is um, not wanting to support the industry. Um, that you know, not wanting to eat meat that invariably almost come from animals that have suffered. Um, and I would, you know, agree that if I, if I can, I would eat meat if the animals had had natural uh, lives. But the factories that many farm animals live in um, was just something that I didn't want to support anymore. Mm. But I think we've certainly covered, I mean, from taking good care of, you know, getting your dog a titer test to saving the planet. Um, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. But what it all comes down to is we need to take care of animals. We need to treat animals well. And we need animals. Um, and I think, I think from a personal, you know, on a personal note, I think one of the great, one of the reasons why being a vet is the best job in the world is that you surround yourselves not just with animals, but with people who love animals. And they're the best people in the world as well. So, so, you know, having animals and living with animals just makes us better as well. Yes. Um, we need to take care of them. Absolutely. Gosh, well, thank you, guys. This was such a, an extraordinary moment to have three of the world's leading vets sat around a table. I'm quite humbled, really. Um, would anyone else like to say anything? One last gem, Andrew and Nick. Go for it. You've each got the mic. Diffi- difficult to come up with a, with a close after that, Lise. Um. <laughs> I'd, yeah, I, I was I always remembered that when uh, in one of my first um, proper jobs as a vet, my boss at the time, uh, she t- she turned to me one day and she said, "You know, Andrew, on a good day, being a vet is the best job in the world." And then, as an aside, it's just not every day is a good day. <laughs> uh, being a vet, being a vet. I think one of the wonderful things about being a vet is that you are taught in a, a, a great variety. You're taught anatomy, chemistry, um, biochemistry, uh, physiology. You then move into animal management. You then move into pathology and pharmacology and a tiny little bit of nutrition. And I am incredibly grateful that I have a working knowledge of so many areas. It allows me to... Uh, uh, encompass and uh, embrace the ecological argument with an idea of where all these things are coming from. I have an idea about medicine, I have an idea about uh, agriculture, I have an idea about um, evolution and, and, and all these things and for that I'm massively, massively grateful actually. No, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. Andrew, one last thing to bring to you, though, actually. Um, you know, it's brilliant what you said, Nick, and, and of course it is a very big study of, of a lot of areas, but the one area, okay, nutrition maybe not could be bigger. But um, what about, you know, stress? Um, it's something that is quite a modern uh, problem. Because um, in Italy, there's stress, there's science that says that dogs, okay, they smell our cortisol, we all know that. But it goes further now. Science has proved that smelling our stress releases the chemo signals in the brain of the dog to then express the cortisol that we've got in our bodies. So that basically our stress is a contagion that makes our dogs stressed. And then, of course, the hormonal balance over time can be quite of a negative negative stressor to everybody's health so we are actually the humans are making animals stressed 
Oh, goodness. Um, yes. I mean, I think we can tie ourselves in terrible knots in, okay. in this country. Right. And I'm sure you're right. I, I think, you know, the reality is if a dog walks into a room, it has a lot more information about everybody in that room than they ever imagined, just from picking up on the smells and the pheromones and all, and all the rest of it. Um, what I did want to just follow up on what Nick was just saying about all these different, the, the different elements of science that we study, um, and it just made me think that one of the buzz phrases that people talk about is one health at the moment and, and the vets are talking about it, the medics are talking about it and the idea, of, the idea is that the health of the animal kingdom, the health of humans and the health of the planet are inextricably linked and um, it's, it's very important that all of us who are concerned with those things communicate as, as much as, as we possibly can. I happen to think that as vets we are, um, we don't want to blow our own trumpet too much here, but I think we are uniquely well placed because we do get all the medicine stuff. We understand all the medicine and the health stuff about animals and it's a very small jump to get all the human health stuff as well and and there, there was a recent survey of, of vets in the UK that suggested that, that the question was about sustainability and 89% of vets said they wanted to do more for sustainability so they're aware of the environmental issues so those the three issues animal health human health and planetary health are inextricably linked and we are at a critical moment right now um, you know, there are red flags waving everywhere. We, we'd really, really, really need to take care of this planet and everybody who's living on it because it could all go horribly wrong unless we're very, very careful. Yes, um, well, a sobering thought, but thank you, Dr. Lise Hansen, Dr. Nick Thompson, and Dr. Andrew Prentice. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining uh, me today on A Dog's Life. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>our show Mr Binks what did you think yes it really is interesting to hear all the different views on should dogs be vegan particularly for me tighter testing and of course Andrew's wisdom always shines through what's that yes you're right it is time for woof of the week <coughs> never be afraid to speak to your vet to turn your vet into your friend ultimately as Andrew Prentice pointed out it is all about one health. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again to Dr. Nick Thompson, Dr. Lise Hansen and Dr. Andrew Prentice and all the links are in our show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen and to Cookie, who has also helped produce this episode. Find out more about them all in the show notes. And for me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday. So, why don't you subscribe now? It's free. Then you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Okay.